is good to be gathered together with you. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is, uh, you have already been a blessing to me. Just hearing us sing together is an encouragement, and I hope you have found your heart encouraged in the Lord this morning. You can take your uh, Bibles and find your way to the book of Acts. Uh, last week, we, uh, last couple weeks, we've just started looking into this new series in uh, Luke's account of the history of the beginning of Christ's church as uh, they really took God's mission seriously and began to spread the fame of Jesus uh, through the areas that they knew about and to the ends of the world. Uh, I want to be honest with you, as I was uh, looking at this passage originally, it was kind of a puzzler. Um, It it records kind of the gruesome details of Judas' death and then the apostles, uh, then the Christians um, replacing uh, the missing apostle uh, because of that. And it's kind of one of those passages you might read in your own Bible reading and think, okay, that happened, and you're kind of page on and look for something else that God might have for you. But as I began to study it more, I began to realize that there are some rich, deep truths about God for us here that I think will be an encouragement to us in our present circumstance. I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 15 of Acts chapter 1, and I'd encourage you to follow along there in your own Bible or follow along on screen. I'm going to read down through the end of chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So, what do you think? Uh, What might God have for us in this passage? It's kind of a little troubling, right? I mean, Luke doesn't spare us the nauseating details of Judas' death. We see how they uh, cast lots, and you might be wondering, already, what are we in for here as a church? But I think this is going to really encourage us in verse 15, notice where, it's described, where, where Luke is describing in those days. I want us to try to imagine a little bit of what life must have been like in those days. These days are the days after Jesus had ascended and they're waiting. Jesus had commanded them to wait for the empowerment of his spirit and they're waiting for this to happen, waiting on the Lord and what they're doing is um, united together, you see that in verse, four, uh, verse 14 just before that, how they were united together with one accord in being devoted to prayer. 
And so you might call these days of anticipation, of looking forward to God fulfilling his promise to them to empower them to carry out the mission he gave them to be his witnesses. And so at some point while they're waiting, Peter stands up before this group and he calls their attention to the need to fill the vacancy that Judas had left. But why? I mean, what does this passage offer us as we seek to obey Jesus and live by faith in our modern-day context? And I think the answer is found in the commission that Jesus gave them in verse 8 when he says that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. They were going to be witnesses of Jesus, resurrected Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so what happens, I believe, is that how are they going to do that? How are they going to be witnesses if one of the witnesses is missing? How are they going to start that? And so what Peter does is he desires to obey Jesus' commission to be witnesses, and that leads us to the phrase that he starts in verse 16 when he says, brothers, which is, by the way, the first time that word is used to describe towards Christians, the sense of family, brothers and sisters. You could say it this way, church family, he says, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. Now, Peter has some specific scriptures in mind that he's going to draw his listeners' attention to, and we'll see that in a minute. But before we get there, I want us to recognize how full of encouragement and meaning that phrase is. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. Think of it. Peter makes this claim in relation to the horrific actions that Judas took against Jesus. Right? Has anything really bad happened in your life, so bad that you didn't even want anybody to talk about it, to bring it up, to mention it? because you didn't want to talk about it, it was that horrible? Well, here Peter is saying to everyone, hey, we've got a problem, Judas is missing, we have a missing apostle, and this this vacancy needs to be filled. I can imagine some of them might have just said, stop it, Peter, don't even remind us of that, the horrors of it. Can you imagine how deeply disturbing and distressing it must have been for the apostles to process what Judas did? I mean, he had traveled with them for three and a half years, he had been with them, a ministry partner, He had overseen the treasury, the the finances of their traveling group as they went around to different cities and areas and ministered. He was one of them, or so they thought. And Luke inserts some backstory here for his readers in verses 18 and 19, in case his readers weren't aware of what happened. But Judas did something horrifically wicked. He betrayed and turned over Messiah, Jesus, to the Roman authorities, and it ultimately ended with the death, the crucifixion of Jesus. And Judas, after he hands us over, he did it for money. He becomes so stricken with grief and overwhelmed by it, he throws the money back to the religious, to the authorities, and he goes out and he kills himself. And so the Judas's co-conspirators had a problem. These are religious people, and so they were like, well, how are we going to use this money? What are we going to do with it? We can't use it. We can't take it back. And so they ended up buying a field where Judas had, um, had committed suicide and that field was then dedicated to be a cemetery. This is called a field of blood. That's what Luke is referring to there in verses 18 and 19. And Luke says in verse 19 that it became known to all. So it wasn't just like this, this small little event that happened in some little strange religious cult called Christians, but it became known to all. I mean, this was a public scandal. And so... Can you imagine what people might have thought about those who still follow Jesus? I mean, just try to put yourself in that mindset of what's happened here and just think. I mean, oh, you're one of those people. Jesus? Oh, yeah, that was the guy that, that Rome crucified, right? 
And that was the guy that one of his own close followers gave up, betrayed him. One of his own turned against him. What a loser. What a failed leader, right? I mean, one of his own, he didn't even convince all those that were close to him, turned him in, turned him over, and ended up being executed. And so I wonder how humiliating it could have been for some of the followers of Jesus to live underneath that public scandal and the horrors of what happened, the sense of betrayal that they felt from Judas and what he had done. Which, by the way, that's another apologetic for the authenticity of Jesus resurrected. I mean, there, were, there weren't good reasons for people to follow Jesus other than the fact that it's true. He is Messiah. He actually rose from the grave. And so the counterweight of all that public scandal and the shame and the betrayal that was there, the counterweight that overcame that was Jesus is who he said he was. He's Messiah. He's Lord. In him, the hopes of the world rest. And so Peter speaks directly into the horror of that loss and betrayal with these stabilizing and comforting words. Church family, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. It had to be fulfilled. And that shows us really the main truth that lies in this section, which is this. God's word and his invincible purposes will be accomplished. God's word and his invincible purposes will be accomplished. Now, Luke describes this to us against the backdrop of the dreadful story of Judas, his betrayal and death, and actually it corresponded to God's invincible purposes. Now, the act of wickedness by Judas was not an interruption or circumvention of God's plan. When Judas betrayed Jesus, think of this, right? I mean, uh, as, a, as a kid growing up, right? There were things that would happen in life and you're trying to figure out if these are, if these are good or bad things, right? And so as a kid, kids kind of look up at mom or dad like, okay, we're going to get some cues on. Is this okay or not okay, right? And maybe for some of us, it's been a long time since we've done that, right? They're the one, they're not looking at you. But when this happened, it wasn't like the Christians were kind of looking up at God and, and God had a worried look on his face like, oh no. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. God had invincible purposes that he was accomplishing in and through the very wicked act that Judas did. Now, is what Judas did wicked? Absolutely, unquestionably, yes. But was it all part of God's invincible plan of redemption? Yes. Jesus taught this when he prayed in John 17. Jesus prayed, he says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That's a reference to Judas. Why? That the scripture might be fulfilled. God has invincible purposes that he is carrying out. Words of promise that he will fulfill. And so that theme of God sovereignly and invincibly accomplishing his plan and purposes runs throughout the book of Acts. Luke is going to keep reminding us as readers about God and his purposes and his invincible plan. For example, in Acts 2, it's probably just a glance down, in Acts 2, verse 23, uh, Peter was preaching and he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And we read that verse and go, well... So who's responsible? The people who delivered him up and killed him? Or is it God who had a definite plan and foreknowledge? God has invincible purposes. Or in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were praying this. They prayed Psalm 2, and then they go into this summary. They say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, 
both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, I know this kind of kicks us in the teeth, right? Because we kind of have this idea of we choose our own destiny and we're doing... And friends, we are responsible for our choices. Absolutely. But God has invincible purposes that he is accomplishing. Absolutely. And that included the betrayal of, Ju- uh, the, the betrayal of Judas. So what all this means is that while Judas did, what he did was horrible and wicked. At the same time, God was at work in and through it all, accomplishing his invincible purposes. So, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Peter had absolute confidence in the utter truthfulness of the scriptures, in the prophetic nature of the Old Testament, and so can we. Peter had confidence in God's sovereign, invincible purposes in Jesus, so can we. Now look at the second half of what Peter says in verse 16. He says, The scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. And we're not going to spend long on this, but it's good for us to to see this to help our own understanding of scripture and, and why we believe what we do here at Highlands. Peter simultaneously affirms the divine and human authorship of scripture. Uh, The Apostle Peter said it this way. He says, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Why? For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what Peter confesses, what Luke records Peter saying here in in Acts 1, Peter writes later in, in in an epistle that it was God's authorship by how we have the Bible. And that's why here at Highlands, the Bible is so central to what we do. It's not just because, well, that's just what religious people do. No, it's because we believe here at Highlands that the Bible is central because this is how God speaks to us. It's how we gather, how we aim to have God-centered worship, why we read the scriptures aloud, why we pray the scriptures and sing the scriptures and preach the scriptures and submit and obey the scriptures because that is where we hear the voice of God. But what scriptures had to be fulfilled? You see in verse 20? Peter draws their attention to two specific passages, for it is written in the book of Psalms. And he quotes from Psalm 69 and from Psalm 109. And in those Psalms, and and they're there, he says, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And then he says in another Psalm, in Psalm 109, let another take his office. Now in those Psalms, Peter was seeing, they, they they were referring to David in the actual Psalm, David as the righteous sufferer and his enemies. And what Peter saw is that David, the righteous sufferer, and his enemies were types, were parallels with Christ and his enemies. Now, there are differences between David and Jesus and between David's enemies and and Judas, Jesus' enemies, but there were parallels there that existed and Peter encourages faith in God's invincible purposes. And so what Peter does is he underscores the conviction that Judas' involvement in Jesus' death and arrest and the vacancy that was left through his betrayal was actually an integral part of the will of God. Now, that's a difficult thing to embrace, right? I mean, you hear words like that and go, okay, but let's tease that out a little bit. I mean, do you see what Peter's doing? 
I mean, speaking into the horrors of where they're at, right? There's a vacancy. Why? Because of this horrific story of betrayal. And he says the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. And he quotes from the Psalms and he runs the parallels between David and his enemies and Jesus and his enemies and says this is why we need to fulfill this office because let another take his office. This was a parallel. This is something that God foretold back in the Psalms. Ultimately, it was fulfilled in the story of Christ's redemptive plan. And so Peter is underscoring the conviction that Judas, what he did, was actually an integral part of the will and plan of God. And that can be troublesome to embrace. Because we might be thinking, well then, is God responsible for what Judas did? And the biblical answer to that is no. God stands behind good and evil differently. But this perspective would have helped these Christians believe in the sovereignty of God, in the invincible purposes of God, are so great and so big that here's what happens. God actually turns evil into good. Genesis 50, Joseph said it this way. Many of you are familiar with with the way Joseph summarizes what he went through to his brothers, right? And he says this, As for you, he's speaking to his brothers who betrayed him and sold him into slavery, right? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. I mean, those statements are are staggering to really embrace them and take them into heart. They're staggering. Can you imagine, though, how life-giving this would be to these Christians? The Scripture had to be fulfilled. It likely would have helped these Christians put away some of the bitterness that they might have struggled with over Judas' betrayal. Remember, none of these disciples were like, yeah, we kind of thought Judas was a little sketchy. I mean, the guy, did you know? Did you hear? Did you see? I mean, that was not the chatter going on there. I mean, when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray, they were saying, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? They weren't all like, yeah, Judas, Uh we've had our eye on you. It was shocking. So let's, let's think about this in our own circumstance. Have you ever felt the pain of betrayal in your life? Have you ever been shocked by some act of evil done against you or those close to you. That kind of pain can really wreck us. It can wreck you. It can plant seeds of bitterness and resentment and doubt. Now, it can wreak all sorts of havoc in our lives, right? One possibility is this, is that one result of the pain of betrayal like that could lead us to become hesitant to trust others. It can make us reluctant to enter into relationships of real depth because of the shock and the horror of that betrayal. And so what we do is, then sadly, we as, even as Christians can, be, be, can begin to settle for superficial relationships. But God wants something more for us. In fact, Jesus says that you're going to be marked as my followers by this. By this will all people know that you are my disciples. Not that you're just diplomatically nice to each other. No, Jesus says, by this will all people know you're my disciples, that you will love one another. And so Luke's description of Judas' defection and betrayal here in Acts 1 teaches us all something about how to handle the kind of pain that is inevitable that we will experience in a world that is cursed by sin. We can be comforted. I mean, to begin with, just knowing this, that Jesus' own disciples experience this. I mean, maybe you think, well, hey, but they were close to Jesus. Maybe they kind of were sheltered a little bit. 
mean, he, Jesus is pretty awesome, right? I mean, God, right? I mean, he could feed them and walk on water and heal and calm storms. And, I mean, they kind of had it going for him, right? Well, but even Jesus' own disciples experienced this kind of pain, and they made it. They made it. They didn't just light a match and torch their faith and walk away. In fact, they had all the reasons to do that, and instead they said this, we want to tell the world about Jesus. We want to tell the world about the a hope that is found in him alone. And so, also we can think of this, just as Peter viewed this episode in their life as part of God's invincible purposes and plan, so too you can trust God with your bad episodes in life. Right? I mean, think about it. If the betrayal of Judas was used by God for good, then we can trust that the pain and misery of betrayal and evil in our own life will be turned by God into something good, even if and when we cannot possibly understand how. I just I come back to this illustration regularly in my own thinking because it just fits so well. But I mean, how would you describe geometry to a cow? Right? I mean, just laughing. I'm at, try to describe geometry to a cow. How long are you going to work at it? How many months are you going to try to explain Pythagoras' theorem to a cow while they just chew the cud and look at you? There are truths about God's majesty and glory and invincible purposes and sovereignty that are probably like God trying to communicate the depths of all of that to us. I mean, do you see what I mean? I mean, friends, I think this is timely for us, right? We will all have experienced tough episodes in our life, episodes that are shocking, that are horrifying, that are difficult, that leave pain, the residue and scars, And friends, will we believe God is more than capable to use even the bad episodes in our life and convert them into being an instrument of blessing? And I know, even saying that might offend you, might anger you, right? Well, God can be trusted with that pain and sorrow. Peter did. Peter saw God's invincible purposes and plans will be accomplished. It didn't mean that he didn't have pain and sorrow in his life over what Judas did. It didn't mean that Peter was like, hey, it's okay. You know, Judas and I weren't really close. I'll forget it. Fine. He chose, you know, fine, fine. That's not what's happening here. Peter is consoling his heart by looking at God's invincible purposes and plan for his people. Now, this is where it gets difficult for us because we might mentally agree with these truths on like a theological test, right? Because we're going to, yeah, the Bible says that, so yes. Not the multiple choice we will check off. But boy, is it hard to embrace these truths and to live in accord with these truths. Why? Well, because sometimes we're reluctant to embrace these truths, these realities that Luke is just putting out in front of us. The scriptures had to be fulfilled because we'd rather nurse these wounds and grudges. Let's just be honest, right? Sometimes we'd rather nurse them, these grudges. We like having these excuses sometimes. Deep down, maybe we have a desire to show those that hurt us how badly they hurt us. They couldn't even do that in Judas' case. You know, sometimes we Christianize this strategy of payback. Friends, I realize some of us might have this intense battle going on as you're wrestling with God's purposes, His invincible plan, ruling and reigning over the horror that you've experienced. I'm not diminishing the horror and the heartbreak that you've been through, 
What I'm trying to do is help us elevate and see the glory of God and His rule and reign, His sovereign, invincible purposes will reign over even that bad episode in your life. And you say, I don't understand how. It's okay, God does. He does. Why would Luke record a reminder of this ugly, brutal, tragic story about Judas? I mean, it doesn't make Christians, it doesn't make Jesus look real good, does it? Why would he record it? And why does Peter use it to illustrate God's invincible purposes and sovereign plan? I think it's because, right, it's not hard for us to believe God's purposes and invincible plan are, are ruling and reigning when things go well for us. When things are going well, we're like, yeah, God's got this. I mean, look at, look at God's sovereign purposes. Ooh, promotion, success, blessing, prosperity. Here's the problem. When things go bad, when there is lying and mistrust and betrayal and death, and that's everything that they experienced. That's when our confidence in God's invincible purposes start to get shaky. Because we're trying to do the mental math, and we're like, this does not add up. That's when we need all the help we can get to believe that God has good purposes, and they are invincible. The Scriptures had to be fulfilled. And that's what Luke gives us here. Not even Judas, not even Satan, who the Scriptures say was motivating Judas to carry out his his dreadful plan, none of that could undermine or escape the all-encompassing invincibility of God's purpose in salvation. So, Acts 1 shows us that we can trust God's sovereignty with every bad episode in our life, every one of them, and look ahead through that pain with God-centered gratitude and hope. We can trust God. And we see the sovereign purposes, God's invincible plan carried out in kind of a, a peculiar way to our modern minds. God's invincible, and as, as he goes down in verse 21 and following, God's invincible purposes and plans provide a new apostle. And uh, I'll just say this briefly, but I do not believe that, that there is this continuation of this apostolic ministry going on uh, this was very unusual. This is the only occasion where we have in the scriptures where it's recorded to replace a missing apostle. And it's because of the unique circumstances that surrounded Judas. It wasn't that he was martyred for his faith, but he betrayed and defected away. And there was that vacancy as the church started its mission, commissioned from Jesus to go and be witnesses and spread the news of Jesus. Because when other apostles died, they, those, those vacancies were not filled. The church wasn't trying to hurry up and fill. Let's... let's Let's find new apostles. It was a very unique ministry in, that, in this phase and segment of God's salvation plan. But notice in verse 22, Peter says this, one of these men must become a witness. Now, we might think of that as kind of, well, yeah, I mean, Peter just was a good leader. He kind of had organizationally had this thing figured out. He knew that, hey, we just got to fill this, this spot. It's got to happen. But that really, I don't think, is what was driving Peter. I think what was driving Peter was a faith-filled obedience to obey Jesus' mission. Go be witnesses. Be witnesses. And Jesus is saying, we need, we, God, Jesus commissioned us, right? There's a must there towards the mission of the church. And as I was studying this, I was just thinking, is there a must in my heart for the mission of the church? Like we all have musts in our hearts towards things in life. And that's what we spend our time and energy and money and effort on. I wonder, is there a must in our heart for the mission of Christ's church? Peter lays out the requirements 
for who can be an apostle in verses 21 and 22, which, by the way, is helpful for us to understand who is actually qualified to be an apostle. Despite what other, other folks might say, the scriptures say that an apostle is someone sent by Jesus to be a witness of Jesus, which means this person, according to Peter here, must have been an eyewitness of what the Lord did and taught from the beginning of, of his ministry, which is why he uses those, uh, that marker there about when the beginning of the ministry of John, John the Baptist, all the way through uh, Christ's ministry and then have seen Jesus after he was resurrected. And so that is... Um, the qualifications that were there and this group of Christians that were gathered there, about 120 it says, it seems that there were two men that qualified that they put forward to serve in that way. And so how did they choose? They submitted themselves to the sovereign and invincible purposes of God. That's how. What does that mean? They cast lots. They threw dice. Maybe. And sometimes they had a uh, stones with, some, with, with maybe the name on it and they would shake it and it was almost kind of sounds to my mind like a bingo ball popping out but it would be a dice that popped out and that's the one that they took and that was God's answer to them. Right? Now, are you dismayed at that? Um, <laughs> I mean, come on, folks, right? I mean, you're kind of chuckling and you're, maybe you're feeling bad like can we laugh at what's recorded here? But imagine if somebody said, I have this massive decision in front of me. I'm praying for God's will to be known. And here's what I've done. I put down all the options for me and I put them in a bucket and I want you to mix them up and just choose a piece of paper and read it to me and that will be God's will for my life. Would you say, man, let's do this? Or would you be like, pump the brakes, bro. Let's talk about how the will of God works, right? So you might be thinking, this is so bizarre. Well, it wasn't actually. This was very traditional for Israel uh, for how Judaism often sought the will of God. Which, by the way, is just a context to our secular minds. Our, our science, you know, we, we, science, we understand how things work. There's not this mystery anymore. It's science and natural laws and all that. But all through the scriptures, Leviticus 16, Numbers 26, the distribution of the land of the tribes of Israel, that was done by casting the lots. Right? Um, Jonah... <laughs> When he's on the ship and they're, they're trying to figure out why is this bad thing happening to me, what are they doing while this ship is blowing around? They're playing a game of dice, right? You know, it's almost like rocks versus papers and hey, it landed on Jonah and they tossed Jonah out. And we just kind of take these stories in stride and don't realize that this was something that was commonly done. In fact, the purpose of casting lots is described in Proverbs 16 like this. I mean, God describes it this way. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Do we believe that? Yes, when the, when the dice roll favorably to us, then we're like, yes, God is in this. But when the dice flips over the other way and it's like, no, and then we're like, God can't be in this. That's where we live in that tension, right? In Acts 1, what Luke is recording into this horrific story, this backdrop of Judas, is that, listen, God's invincible purposes are being accomplished. He's not wringing his hands. He has no worried look on his face. Any of the bad episodes. And so what does this mean? Does this mean that we should be casting lots today? I don't think so. Um, this is the only time that's recorded like that here in Acts moving forward. And it might be, I don't know this for certainty, but some speculate that maybe this is because the Spirit of God hadn't been given in the way that Jesus promised that it would be. We're going to read that soon in Acts 2. And that the Spirit of God, as we see in, the, in, the, in Acts, as Luke continues to record the story, the Spirit of God is the one that's leading and directing and, and sending people into places. They weren't casting lots on where they should go next. 
Maybe that's why. But either way, I believe that the purpose of this account is not to normalize casting lots for us as a church today, but it does and it should strengthen our confidence in God's invincible purposes being accomplished so his church can fulfill its mission. That's what we have here. I notice they didn't just choose somebody by popular vote. They had two good candidates. And what did they do? Look at verse 24. They didn't just say, well, who do you want, who do you want, who do you want? Here's what they did. They, they prayed. And again, that's, that's convicting. Is that our instinct? Is it our instinct as a church family to say, we have a need, let's pray? And it's easy to say that, right? But talk is cheap, friends. Do we believe this? Do our behaviors show that we actually believe this? They prayed. And that aligns, by the way, with verse 14, right? They were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. And all through this they prayed. And why did they pray? Because they said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. They understand that God is the one that knows it, knows truthfully who would be the right person to fill this role in in the vacancy that was left. And so they pray. And they wanted this choice to be God, so they pray. They wanted God's sovereign and invincible purposes to rule and reign, so they pray. And they needed God's wisdom to rule it, and he did. And it says in verse uh, um, 24, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And that's a reference back to Jesus sending them out, assigning them, and, and calling the apostles into a prophetic ministry of being a judge of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so you have 12 apostles that were being sent that were in alignment with those 12 tribes. They were to start their witness of Jesus in Jerusalem to do this. They needed that filled vacancy. And so in verse 26, they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And so what you have here is the church staged and poised and ready to carry out the mission that Jesus gave them, to be witnesses of Jesus to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. I'm going to ask the music team to come up and uh, get us ready to, to sing a song and then after that song we'll observe the Lord's Supper together. What I want us to reflect on today is how God provides what his church needs. God provides what his church needs to carry out its mission. And God's purposes are invincible. So there's application here in our own lives, personally, these these hard times that we go through to rest in God's invincible purposes and plans. He is doing something. He can be trusted. But friends, I want to apply this to us together as a church family. These Christians here in Acts had a need. They were missing an apostle. They needed to carry out their mission of being witnesses of Jesus. And so they worked faithfully, they obeyed, and they prayed, and God provided what they needed to fulfill their mission. And church family, we can trust God to do that for us too. And he is doing that for us too. He is. And I want us to all take heart and be encouraged not just by trying to look around circumstantially and try to figure out all of God's mysterious purposes and plans and that, we'll run ourselves crazy. But can we just trust that what God has shown us about himself and who he is and how he cares for his church, that he is working out his invincible purposes and plans for you individually, yes, but for us together as a church family to take courage in that, to find encouragement in that, Because only when our hearts are fully assured that God is at work will we then have the courage to make the risky decisions of obeying Jesus 
to actually be His witnesses. And that's what God's put in front of us here, to be His witnesses where we work, live, and play. There are people that God wants for you to talk to, for me to talk to, for us to pray about, to see them come to saving faith in Jesus, to have their sins forgiven in Christ. Well, where are we going to find the courage to do that? When we are convinced that God's invincible purposes and plans for our salvation will be accomplished. And he delights in using us to do that. We will be witnesses too. I hope that your heart finds courage and comfort in this text for what God has for us ahead as we seek to obey him.